Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis, and this week I talked to George Eaton about the fallout from Maria Miller's resignation. Michael Prodger talks to the novelist Jim Crace, and I chat to Ian Stedman about the internet's biggest security flaw, Heartbleed. I'm joined by George Eaton, editor of The Staggers. Uh, Raphael Bear is away on a sun lounger somewhere. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about the year in review. So um, MPs have broken up for their Easter recess. Um, Miriam Miller has broken up with her cabinet post for good. Um, so, George, how much lasting effect do you think that the Maria Miller scandal will have? Or is it a, a sort of sudden squall that occupied us for a week? I think it is. I think it's that. I think it's the latter. I, I think the problem for the Tories has been that it has crowded out all the good news they've had on, on the economy. The the improved forecast from the IMF this week suggesting the UK is going to grow faster than any other G7 country. And all of that was missed. It was uh, 29 minutes into PMQs when uh, a Tory MP finally finally mentioned that. Um, With when, one of those amazing planted questions, presumably. Like, would the Prime Minister like to tell us how amazing it is that the IMF has said that the economy is going gangbusters? Exactly that. Um, I think the, the Tories are still in a better position than they were before the budget, and that has given them some momentum. Um, the economy, economic recovery is going to continue to improve. I think they um, have seen the pension moves as an example of how they can do smart targeted things to try to peel voters Mm. back from UKIP. Um, And and the polls are obviously narrower than they were a year ago. Um, But I think Labour's lead is small but stubborn, and it's stubborn enough for the Tories to still worry, um, are we going to to lose the election next year? So... I don't think I don't actually think any of the three main parties sort of end the term in um, in sort of particularly particularly relief because um, everyone's kind of generally pessimistic, aren't they? Yeah. They all. I mean, I think you're right about the Tories in the sense that when they were in their kind of hot and bothered post Cameron, who's going to be leader? Is it going to be Boris? Is it going to be Osborne? That was a moment of particular sticky panic for them, which the budget quashed. Yes. Lib Dems, who were, went into those uh, EU debates feeling quite upbeat about, you know, actually Nick Clegg getting some airtime, came out of them feeling very humbled indeed. Although I still think that, you know, call Clegg on LBC has been a, a success. So if they can get Nick Clegg in front of people, it's not necessarily an unmitigated disaster. 
No, I think what they've realised, though, is that there is quite a large group of voters um, who have made their mind up about Nick Clegg and and they're not going to they're not going to change your view. And the best you can hope is just to make a, a difference at the margins to try to lose slightly fewer MPs um, than than you otherwise would. I mean, the risk for Clegg is that because he has chosen to fight these European elections quite hard, um, rather than say um, saying, well, we're going to focus on the local elections, if they do have a complete wipeout now, if they do lose yeah. all of their MEPs, it will be seen as more damaging than... Yes. If you nail your flags to the mast and then the yeah. ship goes down, that's much more much more embarrassing. But I think the thing that it looks like it's shaping up in the next election is going to be a really, a, a, I think Raf used this phrase, a dirty four-way split in the sense that it really is very hard to predict, for example, the trajectory of UKIP. I mean, you had um, Patrick O'Flynn, who was their spokesman, saying that he thought that they'd reached you know, the peak of the votes that they managed to take away from the Tories in, when they were in Sale and Withenshaw. But I'm not sure whether or not that there are other votes, maybe people who didn't vote before, who are riding a general anti-politics wave that they might pick up. Yes, too. that's right. Quite a large chunk of UKIP's support does come from people who didn't turn out in, in 2010. Um, uh, as to how they'll fare in 2015, you know, in Labour election planners privately estimates uh, that they'll get about 8%. I think that's the, the figure that uh, quite a lot of Tories work on the basis of as well. And that is enough to do serious damage to the Tories, to cost them up to 40 seats, potentially. Is there a concentration of the UKIP vote in a particular Tory seats or in particular geographical areas, or is it quite diffuse? They are strongest in uh, the east of England and, 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 and in some of these sort of seaside areas that have seen particularly high immigration from Eastern Europe. Um, obviously, they've done well in northern by-elections where they've come second and where they are almost now the effective party of opposition there. Mm. But the only difference that could really make is that you see sort of huge Labour majorities reduced to slightly smaller ones. Yeah. So in the long term, I, I, I see the point that people like Rob Ford and Matthew Goodwin make when it, if Labour get into a government in 2015 and it's a very unpopular administration, you can see how UKIP could become a serious uh, alternative in the North as, as a party of protest. But it's not an issue for, for 2015. I think the risk for Labour is that UKIP will take working class votes off them in Conservative Labour marginals. So voters who either didn't vote in 2010 or who voted for the Conservatives, who in the past you would expect to go back to Labour mm. as, as, as the main opposition centre-left party, are instead going to UKIP because they appeal to essentially those who have lost out from globalisation, really, who feel that the economy, society, it's all working against them, it's all going in the wrong direction. And let's talk briefly about the new um, cabinet minister, Saeed Javid. Uh, what do we make of him? Sadiq Javid is has been seen for a long time as one of the most talented of the 2010 intake. So just to clarify, he was financial secretary to the treasury, yes. essentially number two in that department, and he now gets a full cabinet role as depart uh, as minister for culture, media, and sport. Yes, and some people see um, see the move to culture as, as slightly an odd brief to give him, that given that he is seen as someone who is. Um, Sort of quite economically astute. He was a vice president at uh, Chase Manhattan when he was just 25, comes from an economic background. 
But then others make the point, well, actually, the creative industries are incredibly important to the British economy. So why not have someone in there with uh, with uh, sort of a serious, serious grasp of, of business as well? Um, he is inevitably being spoken of as a future leader. And you can see the appeal. I mean, everyone in in the party and, and obviously it's come up recently with Michael Gove and, and Vasi's comments recognize that Cameron's background does uh, act as a cap on, on the Conservatives' appeal and support. Sajid Javid is the son of a Pakistani bus driver. Um, so he has a great, a great backstory, and that is, that is undoubtedly one of the reasons why he's, he's risen up the ranks so fast. And then um, Nikki Morgan was made Minister for Women yesterday, but normally that brief, well, that brief was held by, as, as women and equalities. She didn't get equalities because of her opposition to gay marriage. I wrote a piece essay which suggested that maybe if they're going to treat that brief as an embarrassment, should they just scrap it altogether? I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah, so I thought even David Cameron, who is notoriously bad at reshuffles, would have been able to carry out a minor reshuffle without controversy. Instead, you had this surreal uh well, she was on the a... website for this is the worst thing yeah. she was on the website as being a, a full member of cabinet for about 20 minutes then someone i think had dug out a 1975 act of parliament said you can't have more than 22 members of cabinet so now she appears on the also attends cabinet section at the bottom so that might be a record for the kind of shortest and then there was also this issue that she was then they said well hang on the overall equalities brief belongs to david so she's a minister for women reporting to a man mm. And then they went, no, 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 she's reporting to David Cameron, which then someone pointed out was still a man, but at least he reports to the Queen, technically. <laughs> so actually the matriarchy triumphs after all. Um, but yeah, I mean, how? Uh, what really is, is in David's in-tray? I mean, hey, presumably there is some Leveson stuff still bubbling on somewhere. Yes, yes, there is. Uh, you don't hear much about that these days. No, we don't, no. And, and I think that's, that's exactly um, so how Cameron likes it. I mean, one of the unfortunate things about the, the Miller affair is that it has actually brought that issue to the surface again. When actually you'd seen in the wake of the budget, the, the right-leaning press move into sort of quite hawkish support for the, for the Tories and the sort of coverage you might expect the Tories to get in, in, around the general election campaign where it's often hard to tell the difference between the sun's front page and the posters put out by cchq um so i think i think that is a that is a, a running sore that uh, that javid will have to will have to tackle um but there is this confusion as you say with morgan and javid that who for instance speaks on issues um such as uh such as lesbian women i mean where you know the the that cross yeah. that cross the divide um What's I mean? I, you presume that Cameron saw that that from coming, or, m or maybe not, but presumably just decided. Well, I think Nikki Morgan is sufficiently good that I want her to to to, to be the minister for women, even given the awkwardness it's going to cause. Yeah, I mean, I presume that she's very well respected. I think, and I think presumably he took the view that it would be a one-day school. Some people like us would have a bit of mischief and fun about it, but essentially, it wasn't going to really move the polls in any meaningful yes. way so get over it um okay well so your uh, your end of term report card grade the parties the tories get a the tories get a b b, b for budget oh okay right um, very nice i would say i would give Are they the, all gonna get a b is this where this is going <laughs> i would give the lib dems i give the lib dems a d plus right pluses okay. pluses for efforts okay trying to but yeah trying, not, not yeah. working very well at the moment labor uh, labor, labor get a c Okay, that's good. UKIP? 
UKIP get um UKIP get a B. Bus pass Elvis party. Bus pass Elvis party. El- they they get an A because they're starting from such a <laughs> such a low su- base. Such a low base. Okay, yeah. right. On that bombshell. Um, thank you very much, George. the Cambridge Literary Festival. I'm talking to Jim Crace, author of Harvest, um, his man book, a shortlisted novel of last year. Jim, can you give me an idea of, um, of what, the, what are the book's about, just in, in the broadest terms? It's about um, dispossession from land, that ancient connection which human beings have with the, the place where they were born, um, their, their acre of, of uh, locality, as it were. It's about that subject. And it's also about the subject of how we deal with outsiders, with incomers, um, and the scapegoating, scapegoating, the scapegoating of um, people when things go wrong. But the Trojan horse setting for those subject matters, those modern subject matters, um, is the enclosure movements of the Midlands of England, in which land was taken for sheep rearing in the 15th, 16th, 17th century, uh, and um, those marks that were left, the ridden furrow marks that were left in fields to this day, which marked the very final ploughing of those fields. So it's a, a very important and, and affecting part of the English landscape is what this book is about. Now you're very, you're very specific when it comes to describing the, the terrain of this village uh, and the, the people and the fabric and texture of their lives. But you're not, when it comes to describing the, ge- the, the broader geographical location or the time. We, we could be at any time between the 19th century and the 16th century, and we could be somewhere in England. Why is it that you mix up um, the specific nature of description uh, but have that broad, open-ended feeling to, time, to geographical time and place? Well, I kind of do that in all of my books, and, and, and it seems to work, and I, and I do it instinctively. But when I look for an explanation for it, I think it's something to do with my Puritanism as a journalist. Now, I'm a very libertarian person in one respect, but Puritan in others. My fiction is very libertarian in that everything is made up. But when I was a journalist, I didn't invent anything because I thought that you had to hold a mirror up to the real world. And if you were Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Describing a real place, you had to get the facts, um, reflect the facts accurately. The place that you were describing had to smell like that, taste like that, look like that, and sound like that, because that's what good journalism does, not gutter journalism. And so the problem is that if I then choose a setting and call it 1666, and I choose a setting and I call it five miles from Stratford upon Avon, which I could easily have done, then you are the servant to the master of truth. And you would be doing a disservice to truth by telling 
lies and inventing things that actually didn't happen and didn't exist. And I don't want that kind of constraint. I don't want to be in that kind of straitjacket. I was in that kind of straitjacket when I was a journalist. But I want to be free from those fetters, and I just want to invent. There's a reason why I want to invent. And that is because even though this book is set in the past and is an historical novel, it's not an historical novel in the sense that, say, um, uh, Bring Up the Bodies, um, uh, um, Hilary Mantel, as books are historical novels. Now, she's the gold standard at the moment of writing historical novels, so let's not misinterpret what I'm saying. But she described in uh, a list of rules for the author magazine, the, the house organ of writers, what historical novelists should do. Rule one, her main rule, was that if you have a fact, you should be absolutely certain that that fact is true, and granite true fact, and not use it unless you are certain. Now, I'm not interested in that at all, because what I'm interested in is the wonder of invention rather than the solidity of a truth. So avoid that, rule number one. Her second rule, also a good rule, is that you shouldn't foist onto historical fiction the sensibilities of the 21st century. So, for example, if you were going to set a novel in 1666, say, you couldn't fill the novel with people who were not homophobic, who weren't racist, <clears throat> that didn't believe in God, and, and, and were feminists, because much as you'd want them to be like that, they wouldn't be like that, they'd have a different set of prejudices. Well, actually, she's right by her own context, but my, my, by my context, that's all I'm interested in, is foisting on a historical setting, 21st century sensibilities. Because what I'm interested in is not revealing the past, but using the past as the Trojan horse by which I can discuss the present time. It's just another pious way of approaching fiction. It's different from hers, but it does mean that I can't be too specific about place or time. Do you, though, have in your own mind uh, a place and time that you then have to finesse out of the written, out of the written word, in a sense? Well, it sounds like a rather dodgy question, this, but... It, uh, um, and this wasn't present the whole time when I was writing. But if there was someone standing at my shoulder, and I'm going to really ask to be in Stude's corner for this, if there was an influence hanging over me, a massive, greater influence hanging over me, and then it was Shakespeare. And it was because the landscape that I walk in and most often encounter Ridge and Furrow is Shakespeare country. It's Warwickshire and Worcestershire and, you know, south of Birmingham. And there was another... Um, aspect of Shakespeare, apart from his, his invented language that I copied. And that was that if you think about Shakespeare's geography, here he was a man of the Midlands, a man of Warwickshire, who managed to turn the forest of Arden into Greece and ancient Rome, and managed to turn Greece and ancient Rome, and Vienna in the case of the measure for measure, into the forest of Arden. And so the forest of Arden is a real place on a real map, almost with a real date attached to it, his lifetime. But it also stands for so many other things. So if you, were to, if you were to force me into a dungeon and make me say, where is this and when was it? I would say, it's in Shakespeare's time and it's in the Forest of Arden, knowing that actually that tells you nothing. It's all about what fiction can do. It's all about, it's all about the liberties you can take with reality in order to come up with a, a truth which is not as puritanical as the reflected truth of nonfiction. Um, but is subversive in the special ways that fiction has. Jim, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Michael.
I'm joined by our technology writer, Ian Stebbins, to talk about Heartbleed. So, first of all, who or what is a Heartbleed? Heartbleed is a very serious bug in a very fundamental part of the security that websites use to make sure that uh, information is kept confidential. Um, it's called Heartbleed because it's, it's, um, it was found by a security company called Co- Codenomicon. And they called it Heartbleed to, as a, almost like a branding exercise. I mean, you know a security bug is really serious when it has its own logo and brand name. Who um, designed the logo? Did they design they the They designed logo? it. They set their own website and everything um, to try and raise awareness of it because it is a really serious bug. Um, to now, explain- I struggled to explain. You struggled to explain this to me last night, but have I got it right? So essentially what happens is this is about the way that websites securely interact with each yeah. other. Um, and there's a flaw, a security flaw in that, which means that they could start spitting out code that allows your private information. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the way websites, like the most basic way a website works is you have your computer and there's a web server and you kind of, they send data between each other. Um, you don't want people to be able to see what data you're sending to a website and you don't want, and vice versa, because it might have your password in it or your username or your email address or your password hint or all kinds of information. So um, they use these protocols which um, effectively encrypt the signal and then decrypt at the other end. Um, and what has happened, uh, there are lots of different pr- um, protocols for doing that, but the most widely used is one called OpenSSL. Mm. Um, it's an open source library of effectively like keys that are used to crypt, uh, encrypt and decrypt co- um, information and data. So what should happen is that if a, a server, like even if you could get the information and you could see what was being transferred, you wouldn't know what it was because it's been encrypted and you don't have the right password or security certificate or whatever. Um, the server doesn't trust you to tell you what's in that data or whatever. Um, with Heartbleed, yeah. someone's found out that you can ping a web server um, in a certain way. It's um, a hole that's been left open and it will send out 64 kilobytes of data that's in its memory. Now, this is just random data on a server. It could be anything. It could be a website. It could be uh, a database. It could be username, password, whatever. But it leaves no trace when you ping this, when you ping a server using this method. Um, And you could do it as many times as you want. So, and it's been undiscovered for two years. The bug that introduced it was... um, Introduced on New Year's Eve 2011, which has led a lot of conspiracy theories about whether this was like an NSA thing. They were deliberately undermining the most popular standard for keeping traffic secure on the web. Um, Because this has come up several times in some of the revelations that The Guardian have had from Edward Snowden about the NSA is that so much of the Internet depends on cryptography. Mm. But all you really need is a strong enough computer or enough computing power to break yeah. And we are approaching a time at which they will invent a, what is it, a quantum computer or something that would yeah. be, that would, there would be simply no way to ever encrypt anything. Yeah. 100% and, and then securely. when you get that, you have to deal with a very fundamental mathematical problem, which is um, with whether P equals non NP, you know, the traveling salesman problem. No, I um, don't, but let's say um, I do. I, I, I'm, unfortunately, I can't remember the exact details, but there's this longstanding uh, problem in mathematics, which is um, <laughs> effectively whether it's possible to, solve any kind of code uh cryptography cryptographic code or whatever or not um if it is possible it means that once we invent quantum computers there's gonna be no such thing as security anymore on the web at all um which would be great but But vice versa if it's the other way around then it means that we can have privacy and stuff but there are also kinds of ramifications there for like tracking down criminals so now, we are getting a kind of a little preview of that now, aren't we? Because one of the big problems about this is that people are being asked to reset their passwords, but that's not necessarily the best yeah, option. Yeah, with Heartbleed, because 
it's not just passwords that might have been leaked. It might have been the security certificates that allow people to unencrypt the passwords. So you have the issue that you could change your password and they might the website that you were registered with might have updated the bug, so that, uh, patched it so it's not a bug anymore. But if the actual certificate leaked, then they can still decrypt and any kind of thing that's traffic that's coming in there. So um, you have all these security experts uh, like Bruce Schneier, who is like well, like one of the top cryptography experts in the world, called it catastrophic. It's like eleven out of ten disaster for security on the web. Um, and lots of other experts have pretty much just been saying like. Stay off the internet for a few days. No, don't <laughs> do any like, internet shopping. The, don't the log you into do. your. I mean, I guess the point about all of these things is it's really interesting when these happen because most of the problems with passwords, yes, some people really need huge levels of high security. Most people are protected by a kind of weird version of herd anonymity. It's sort of like yeah. there, there are so many people who've got password as their password that you just normally you're lucky in that you're not the one that gets targeted. But I think maybe the best thing that I read generally about passwords is the idea that. Trying to have a different password for everything that you remember becomes really impossible and almost yeah. no one can do it. So you're better off generating proper secure passwords, i.e. mixtures of letters and numbers with maybe non-standard characters if you're allowed, yeah. of a decent length, and keeping them on a piece of paper next to your computer because it's much less mm. likely that anyone's going to break into your house and then log yeah. into your eBay account than it is that you typing password one. <laughs> yeah. Or using the same password across many different services. And then yeah. this isn't what's happened in the past, is that one service has been compromised. And then if you use the same very secure password across everything, yeah. it's not secure anymore. I'd recommend using... I recently switched over to using a password manager, which randomly generates like strings of 14 random characters and keeps them... So you only have to remember one password to get into your vault where you keep all your other passwords. Um, it does make entering them on computers quite difficult because if someone asked me my password, I have no idea. Although that's actually a good idea because if someone broke into my house and like tried to torture me to get a password, I wouldn't be, I, I genuinely yeah. wouldn't know Someone it. desperate yeah. to get access to your For, Etsy to my, account. My, all the yeah emails I get from press releases and stuff be exciting but what you can do presumably in the meantime now is is switch to more two-step verification yeah absolutely so um, explain that for because i only found out what yeah it was about there's um google offers this twitter's recently introduced it um it's the idea two-factor because there's two steps to it so um whenever you for instance with um G, uh, google's one you type in your password but if google sees that you're logging in from a computer that you you haven't said that you've done before and you trust it will um text you an, a code and then ask you to enter the code on the computer. So it has that extra level of security. So even if someone in, say, Brazil was to hack your, your password, they still couldn't get in because they wouldn't have your mobile phone. Um, if they steal your mobile phone, then you're screwed as well. But, you know, that's very unlikely. Yeah. But so that would protect you against Heartbleed, presumably. Um, because... Yeah, I, I actually don't know. Yes, it would. I like and this is going to be a really pessimistic yeah, conclusion this segment when they, we go, I mean, well, let's just all cross our fingers they, and hope. Because the Heartbleed's so fundamental a leak, um, the thing that sort of, say, the, 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 the coding that Google uses to verify that that code is co the correct code that you've entered, that might have leaked. It's that kind of fundamental break. Uh, but yes, two-factor authentication. Will certainly help. Will help, yes. And how long will it take to fix or patch this bug? Um, it takes depends on the thing. I mean, it affects about two thirds of the web, so um, it's going to take a long time. It, um, there are, if you go to the New Statesman website and the article I wrote about this, there's a link to a website where you can type in websites and it tells you whether they've patched it yet, so they're secure. You should wait until the, a website that you use has been patched before changing your password, um, and then 
God, I just find it. <laughs> hopefully there are just... more of these, really. This, uh, that people are now scared that there are more of these massive undiscovered bugs leaking in quite fundamental architecture. Well, that's a lovely, nice, uh, optimistic note. Stay safe, podcast, everyone. <laughs> yeah. Maybe just go back to old-fashioned using maybe conch shells. Papyrus. Or, or yeah, something, something yeah. like that. Uh, thank you very much, Ian. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. We're produced by Philip Morn and the drilling is provided by JP Morgan opposite us. on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.